Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from Hosea chapter 2, just to set a little bit of the context for our sermon passage, which is Hebrews chapter 6. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. But before we go to Hebrews chapter 6, let's look at Hosea chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse 8. I'll read down to verse 18. It's just the middle chunk of this chapter. There are some terrific gems that come before it, some terrific gems that come after it. But for the sake of time and focus, I just want to highlight verses 8 through 18 in Hosea chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest. And the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there and in the days of her youth as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. Amen. The apostle, the apostle, sorry, the prophet, this is an Old Testament guy. The prophet Hosea addresses Israel and warns them very sternly that they are steering into a nasty bit of trouble. He compares very graphically and personally their spiritual idolatry to sexual immorality. That they are equivalent to an adulterous spouse, having left their God, their one true God, for false gods. God, like a faithful yet jealous husband, will respond justly and mercifully. He promises three courses of action. First, because Israel has been led into its idolatry through the multiplicity of its blessings, 
God will remove those gifts from her. He will bring her into the wilderness and into the desert. And there strip her naked of all her goodness. Naked and ashamed and loaded with sin. She will have no defense and no excuse. Secondly, he will cause her to become a laughing stock to all her former lovers. None of the gods will go into the wilderness to help her. None of the nations of this world will rush to her aid. She will be utterly abandoned and alone in the wilderness. But then thirdly, verse 14, Therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. God, having removed every earthly comfort from her, having taken her into the deep despair of the desert, now promises to be with her. I will comfort her. I will allure her. He says, I will make the valley of Achor, where Achan was stoned to death, a valley of death, a valley of curse, a valley of judgment. I will make it a door of hope. The place where death once reigned, life will rule. A place where the curse was handed out will become a place of life. Sounds a lot like the cross, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the empty grave. That where death and curse came upon Christ, life and blessing came upon us. Indeed, that's what God promises in verse 16. No longer will you go around relating to me and treating treating me like a Baal, Like my master, my Lord, a transcendent sovereign. You will instead call me my husband. A term of intimacy and of affection. In fact, in the Hebrew, instead of Baali, you will say Ishi, my man. This is a promise that God will become flesh and dwell among us. You will say, you are my human, my man. The one who dwells with us in our flesh. Who loves us. And saves us. This is what Hosea promises. A covenant for all animals. A covenant for all life. That there should be peace and safety in Christ. With this in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Our sermon text this morning is in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 4, and I'll read through verse 12. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, going through verse 12. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, without any named author, has been arguing that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament. He is the summing up of the Old Testament. And that the Hebrews of the New Testament age should not return to the Old Testament way of life. They should stay with Jesus. He first argues that Jesus is superior to the angels. Don't go back to the fates of the patriarchs in Genesis. That was revealed through angels, but Jesus is better than angels. He says, secondly, don't go back to Moses. Israel had faith in God through Moses, but don't go back to that. Jesus is better than Moses. And now thirdly, he is arguing that Jesus is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. In chapters 5 and 6, he seems to take a little bit of a break from that line of logic. Jesus is superior to each of these Old Testament forms of revelation. Now, he says, there's an effect that this should have on us. We should have a growing faith, a persisting faith, a waiting faith. 
We're in that middle section right now. This morning, we look at where the Holy Spirit testifies to us that because Jesus is the Savior, we should have a persistent faith. All right, let's begin with verse 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open chain. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful by those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that each one, that each of you, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. And amen. A little stream of water on the far side of the alfalfa field collected all the rain off from the forested hillside. It came into this little channel, worked its way across the flat farmyard, and landed into the Rondout Creek. On its banks would always grow up this wild weed patch. Poison ivy, briars, thistles, stinging nettles, all these nasty and depraved plants that no human wants to encounter. But right next to it, separated by only a tractor tire's width of empty dirt, was the lush green alfalfa field. Heavy with protein and nutrients that when we chopped it and turned it into silage, we could feed it to the cows and they would have lots of nutrition and protein to make lots of milk. I remember as a boy walking the road between these two patches of alfalfa and sitting down in the tractor track and wondering about the weed patch to the right and the fresh cultivated alfalfa to the left. What a difference. I mean, it's the same dirt. It's the same soil. It's the same field. It sits under the same sun. It receives the same rain. But the difference is the care that it has been given. That the one field has been plowed and planted and good seed has been given to it and it is useful to the farmer. The other piece, once a year, usually in winter, we'd light it on fire. And we would just burn off all the weeds. The Holy Spirit, in Hebrews chapter 6, calls our attention to this reality. 
to this stern warning, this sweet encouragement. Not all of us are growing. Not all of us are cultivating the soil of our hearts and receiving the scriptures in faith. And so Hebrews chapter 6 gives us this good news to inspire us to cultivate our hearts. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. The truth in this text is that God's Spirit assures God's sons. The heirs of God receive the Spirit of God and are confirmed in their relationship. And so let us persist in faith, hope, and love. Let us persist in faith, hope, and love. Look at the text with me this morning. Notice beginning in verse 4, 5, and 6, a stern warning is given. An illustration or metaphor to make the point is given in verses 7 and 8. This is sort of the first half of the passage. It is a stern warning. The second half of the passage, 9 through 12, is a great or sweet encouragement. First, the warning. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The Holy Spirit here teaches us That there are those who come into the influence of the Holy Spirit and partake of the means of grace. Consider each of these lines. There are those who have been enlightened. In Psalm 119, we are told that the opening of your word gives light. That when the Bible is opened, whether to be read or sung or taught or preached, when the word of God opens, light comes forth. And we are enlightened. There are those who sit with the scriptures and receive its light. They are enlightened. They know truth. They know reality. They grow in intellectual understanding. Secondly, they have tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they have actually sampled grace. This likely refers to sacraments. That they have come under the water of baptism. And have actually experienced The grace of being marked as a child of God, as having come into a community and a fellowship in which grace reigns. Similarly, they have come to the table of the Lord. They have eaten, they have drunk, and have so partaken or tasted the heavenly gift. They know the flavor of grace and what it is to be a recipient of the grace of God. Thirdly, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is, his gifts, his power, his sanctification. They have actually been witnesses as fellow church members grow in grace. As they become more godly, as they repent of sin, as they embrace a righteous life. Perhaps they themselves have actually had some conformity to this experience. That is, they themselves have actually grown in morality, in ethical standing. And their behavior has been modified to match the law of God. 
Then they have lastly tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That is to say, these people who have frequented the worship service and have participated in the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and the prayers of God's people, their fellowship, they have actually tasted the goodness of the word of God. They have experienced the benefits of obeying the Bible. They have heard what is taught. They have heard what is preached. And they go and do it. And they find, you know what, that is good. Following the Bible is beneficial. It's good. They also have tasted the powers of the age to come. They have actually experienced something of the joy and the cheer of the new heavens and the new earth. They've come into a community of grace. They have participated in rituals of grace. And so have actually found on the tips of their tongues and on the edge of their teeth, Grace. Now this is a great warning for us, isn't it? Because the, he, the Holy Spirit here isn't simply telling us, this is what happens when you worship. How much comfort we might have had the Holy Spirit framed this simply as those who regularly worship God. Those who come to the scriptures, the sacraments, the prayers, and discipline themselves to make that a daily part of life, a weekly part of life, this is what happens to them. They get light. They get love. They get grace. They get goodness. But what the Holy Spirit here is actually saying is if. If. What happens when we are faithful in worship, diligent with the means of grace, but we don't actually get grace? We're diligent with the means, but we're not getting the grace. This is the terrifying prospect that the Holy Spirit presents to us as a stern warning. Warming a pew on Sunday morning won't save you. Daily Bible reading won't save you. Regular disciplined use of the means of grace. Friendship and fellowship with fellow believers in and of itself alone will not save you. For we are warned in verses 4 and 6 that it is impossible for such persons who then fall away from those things to be renewed to repentance. Meaning it is possible to fall away from those things. Now, let's be very clear with our definitions. I want to walk through each of these phrases and make very plain for us what these phrases mean. If they fall away, does that mean fall away from saving faith in Jesus Christ? No, we have lots of Bible passages that say that's not possible. Does it mean that they fall away from their divine election, that Father in heaven has chosen them to be their child? No, we have lots of Bible passages that say that's not possible. So in context, what does fall away mean? Fall away from the means of grace. They stop going to worship. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop submitting to the accountability of the saints. They stop respecting the authority and discipline of the church or the parents. 
or the civil magistrate. They, they live as autonomous rebels. They live in rejection of every good thing that God has given them in order to save them from their sins. If they fall away from the means of grace, it is now impossible to renew them from repentance because there are no other means that are given. This is what is being argued for us today. That we, friends, should take seriously our time in the Scriptures. Not that that saves us, but that we aren't saved without it. Or, to put it in the words of the uh, RP Church in Airdrie, they had a big sign on their wall for many, many years, I think it's gone now, that said, going to church won't save you, but it will put you in touch with the one who can. This is the point that the Spirit is straining to make. That we should understand that going through the motions in some sort of religious piety isn't enough. We must actually have true faith in Jesus Christ. We must actually have a real embrace of this person, Jesus Christ. Because we can fall away from our religious rituals. We can fall away from our community of accountability. And we lose touch with the tools and instruments that are being used to work out repentance. In verse 6, we are given the fearful consequence, the terrifying reality as to what happens when you do this. You crucify again the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Those who regularly worship and come under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who experience some degree of enlightenment, who taste some degree of grace, who partake of the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, who delight in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, yet nevertheless then throw it off and say, I'm not interested. I don't want to be in worship and I don't want to be part of the means of grace. Those who do so say, I don't need Christ. I don't need His cross. He might as well stay up there. Let's just put Him back. We don't need Him. Those who reject the means of grace reject the need for grace. And they say, I'd rather have Jesus on the cross. And they crucify him again. They put him to open shame and ridicule. I'm not a needy person. In myself, I am righteous and well off. This is the conceit and the pride, the self-righteous disdain that openly shames Jesus by denying our desperate need of Him and how utterly dependent upon Him we are. To make this point, the Holy Spirit hands us the metaphor in verses 7 and 8. A metaphor that I used in the opening illustration, but a metaphor that isn't original with me or Hebrews chapter 6. The metaphor is a simple one. At least for those who have a garden. At least for those who have grown up on a farm. There's dirt. And all life comes from dirt. The dirt has seed inside of it. Water comes down and soaks the seed. And the seed opens up and puts out roots. The sun shines and those roots send out leaf. And stalk, flower and plant. 
And sometimes in that process, there are useful herbs. That is, there are plants that are profitable for human life. But sometimes, according to verse 8, there are thorns and briars. Plants that are useless. Plants that are just cursed for wasting space and that are burned. According to Jesus in Mark chapter 4, soil is an apt metaphor for human hearts. Seed is an appropriate metaphor for the word of God, the means of grace. The scriptures sung, read, taught, preached, the fellowship of the saints and the prayers of the people of God, the sacraments. And as those seeds are dropped into the soil of our hearts, what happens? According to Hebrews 6, there is a rain that often comes upon it. I love that they stuck in there the word often. For he's referring to those who are faithful in worship attendance. He's referring to those who are disciplined in the means of grace. And they come and they receive the scriptures often. And the rain, that is the Holy Spirit, comes often. And there's enlightenment. They understand the scriptures. And there's a taste of grace. And there's a partaking of the power of the Spirit. And there's there's the good word of God and the powers of the age to come that is experienced in their life. But they only produce thorns and briars. What's gone amiss? What's the difference? We've got one human heart, we've got another human heart. They both sit in this room. They both hear the same sermon. And the seed goes through the ears into the heart. They both have the same social operation of the Holy Spirit. Blessing that sermon. But some respond with useful herbs. They grow. They repent of sin. They flourish and they live. But others produce only thorns and briars. They become angry and bitter. They become rebellious and self-centered. How do we divide the one from the other? How do we know which one we are? What do we do with this? This is a terrible warning. That some of you sit in these pews Sunday after Sunday. And you don't believe in Jesus. What a horrifying thought. That the grace of God like a flood is pouring into this room. And you are closing every window and door inside of you to keep it out. Now, I want to say you. Because I want you to self-examine. But sadly, you know all too well that it can be true of the guy in the pulpit too, can it? That he too can preach Lord's Day after Lord's Day, grace and love, but never believe it himself. Sadly, it happens. Beloved, this is a stern warning, is it not? Be warned. Going through the motions of your religion are not enough. Something critical is missing. Something essential is missing. And it is given to us in verses 9 through 12.
There's three parts here that I want to look at. In verse 9, verse 10, and then thirdly, verses 11 and 12. First, the Holy Spirit says to you, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. What here is testified by the Holy Spirit is that first ground of hope. We are confident of better things. We are confident that you, my friends, each and every one of you, need not leave this room with thorns and briars growing out of your heart. You need not leave this sermon unbelieving. We are confident of better things. We are confident of things that accompany salvation. Because you are the beloved. But beloved The first critical fact that the Holy Spirit calls us to see when we want to be assured of our salvation is not our sanctification, is not our conformity to the image of Christ, is not our obedience to the law. If you want to know you're saved, you don't even look at yourself. You look at God. You look at the love of God in Christ. But beloved... You are the loved ones. Do you not know? But beloved, you the recipients of love. You who are loved. We are confident of better things. God's love makes us confident of better things. What things? Things that accompany salvation. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 36. If you have not memorized it, you have an assignment this afternoon. What things accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? What are these better things that accompany salvation? Assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Increase of grace. And perseverance in these things until the end. Does that sound familiar? Love, joy, peace. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And perseverance in all of these until the end. Love from God worked in us. I'm sure He loves me. I have peace in my conscience. I have joy in His Spirit. I have growth in His grace. And above all, I persist and persist and persist. Now these things ebb and flow, don't they? Isn't that striking? These things wax and wane. Some days you're really increasing in grace and some days you're not. Some days you just have joy in the Holy Spirit everywhere. And some days you can't find it. Some days you are just sure of your Father's love. And some days you're like just sure of his hatred. It ebbs and flows. But they are the better things which accompany salvation and manifest love. The Spirit works within us to testify to us you are the loved ones. Here is peace. You are the loved ones. Here is joy. 
You are the loved ones. If we are to experience assurance of love, if we are to experience joy, we are to turn not to the self, not to the religious performance, but to the work of the Spirit, to the love of God in Christ, to the objective reality of who God is and what He's done. That's the first part. Secondly, if we are to know the assurance of salvation, verse 10, we are to also not only experience the love of God, we are to express the love of God. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We, the beloved, have a work to do. That we labor to love one another. And let me tell you, sometimes it's a big labor, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard work to love each other, isn't it? Sometimes we're not very lovable, are we? It's a work. It's a labor. And we strain with all the power of the Holy Spirit to not only receive and experience the love of God, but to give it away. To express it to one another. To minister to the saints. To serve those who are in the fellowship with us. Who together are the beloved. As we love one another with the love with which the Father has loved us. Fulfilling 1 John. Who said, by this they will know, that is the world, that you are my disciples. You love one another. Our identity in Christ is expressed by our love for each other, our ministry to the saints. And God is not unjust to overlook this. God remembers this. God sees this. So, so often in life, you go around loving each other, and the love is not reciprocal. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever loved someone who didn't love you back? In fact, have you ever loved someone who hurt you again and again? Have you ever loved someone who maybe reciprocal, was reciprocal, but wasn't equal? Your love far outgave their love. God is not unjust. He knows The great imbalance of love that exists between us. And so he heaps more grace. And so he heaps more love. When you run out of love for one another, where do you go to get more love? See, point one. You go back to the fact that you are loved in God. You go back to the endless, infinite love of God. That love that he so justly lavishes upon us that we might love one another. Do we want to be sure we're children of God? Then love his other children. Then love your siblings. And when you run out of love for your siblings, that's okay. Go back to your father. He has more love for you. He will refresh you with his love. And you can keep on loving. That's the second. What's the third? Verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There are two parts here that I want us to see. First is the diligence, not sluggish. We are to be those who experience the love of God, who receive the love of God. 
And we are to be diligent about it. Not sluggish. Don't be half-hearted and idle. Do not be inactive or casual or distracted. Let us be diligent, disciplined, and faithful to get after the love of God. To pursue it. To see it in everything around us. To see love of God. It was was George who noticed. Maybe some of you have noticed. I begin my prayers the same way every time, don't I? Thank you for this beautiful day. Now, I don't always feel like the day is beautiful. That, That is not always a consistent expression of my feelings. But it is a consistent expression of my faith. That I have a loving father who has never given me a day where he wasn't expressing his love to me. That with diligence I am to hunt out the love of God in every experience of life. With diligence I am to believe that the love of God is behind everything that is happening to me and happening to my world. I am to be diligent in seeing and believing in the love of God. But secondly, I am to be diligent in expressing the love of God. In one sense, the Holy Spirit here is telling us, when we worry about whether or not we're actually getting grace from the means of grace, the correct answer is, hey, stop worrying. Start loving. That's kind of the answer. Wow, am I really a child of God? I don't know. You know what? Stop worrying. Start loving. Go to God for love and love one another. These are the two steps to this dance. Do it with diligence, not being sluggish. Eagerly receiving the love of God, eagerly giving the love of God to his fellow saints. The second thing I want us to see in these verses is that in such persistence, a lifelong devotion to receiving the love of God and sharing the love of God results in assurance. That the same diligence, this diligent and disciplined application of the love of God to ourselves and one another results in us coming to full assurance of hope until the end. We come to the assurance. It's a journey. It's a process. How many of you are fully assured? None. You're not dead yet. It's something that is part of the process. We're growing in assurance. We're growing in confidence And the tighter we hold to the love of God, and the more freely we give away the love of God, the more sure we become that we are the beloved, the recipients of grace, and this, the means of grace. And this, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He points us back to our fathers. Abraham was promised a kid. How long did he wait? 100 years. Abraham was promised the land. How long did he wait? 400 years. Adam Adam was promised a son who would kill a serpent. How long did he wait? We actually don't know. Several thousand? A long time. We are to follow in the footsteps of our fathers. We are to imitate our mentors. And to persist in believing the promises that do not seem to be coming true. 
to persist in believing that God is at work in us and among us and through us. Last illustration. I have, throughout my ministry, been asked many times by many young people, when did you know that Lydia was the one? And I love to say, August 12th, 2005, at about 7.30 p.m. And they go, wow, that's really specific. And I go, yeah, that's when she said I do. That's when I knew. All the stuff leading up to that was kind of hints and guesses. Yes, our anniversary was yesterday. But you know what? Having just had our 18th anniversary, I can't do math. I am now way more sure than I was 18 years ago. And I'm looking forward to 50 more years of becoming increasingly more sure. This is the nature of assurance. God's Spirit assures God's sons. You're my kids, and I got you. It's going to be okay. You must persist in faith, hope, and love. And you will find the persistence is paid off. Do you see that? This is a frightening passage because it shakes us out of our indifference and our laziness. But this is a precious passage because it shows us that persistence in the promises of God always pays off. Beloved, God's Spirit assures God's sons persist in faith, hope, and love. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for a stern warning, Father. We need it. We so easily fall asleep. We so easily get distracted. We so easily think that just going through the motions, that that performing our piety and checking the religious box is enough. But Father, we thank you for the great encouragement that if we diligently use the means of grace as recipients of your love and as givers of your love, truly, your spirit is at work in us and through us. We pray, Father, that we would believe in the Holy Spirit, that we would believe in one holy Catholic church, that we would believe in the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins, and we would live out that belief in our love for one another and our service to the saints. Our Father, we give you thanks for this good news, for this call to obedience, and pray that we would believe and obey by the power of your Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.